Well, this morning, obviously, is November 1st, and uh, for almost 14 centuries, that's over a 1,000 years, the church has set aside the 1st of November to commemorate and remember the saints of the past. Now, sometimes the church has done that in unhealthy ways and venerated saints to the point of almost worship, which I think would cause um, the saints to roll over in their grave and, and quench God's spirit. Um, nevertheless, it is important for us, I think, to know where we come from, um, our history, which is why we recited the, the Apostles' Creed. That has bound together the church for 2,000 years as a common confession that it's important to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us, and, and we are so indebted to God's gracious work through their lives, and they still are a voice that speak to us. Um, so in keeping with that tradition, we have endeavored over the past five or six years um, to, to select somebody that we, from church history that we are going to um, look at and hear from. And uh, sometimes I have a difficult time deciding who, who to choose from history um, to do this. This particular year, it wasn't difficult for me to choose. That is, there was only one person that came to mind that I really wanted to highlight and, and know better myself and also bring to the congregation. That's the the life and the ministry of Aidan Wilson Tozer, also known to us as A.W. Tozer. Uh, apparently, he didn't like his given name of Aidan, so he just went by A.W. Tozer. Didn't like his name. But before we look at his, his life and some of the things that he wrote, I, I just want to tell you what prompted me to choose him. In one sense, it's totally fitting to talk about him on this particular day, November 1st, because in 1997, it was November 1st that I... I started work here at Parkway Community Church 12 years ago, um, which in my mind is, is a miracle in and of itself. I remember going home after the first couple of months thinking, there is no way I can do this long term. I mean, how do you keep doing sermons and come up with material for weeks and weeks and weeks? I really didn't think I, I could do it. And truth be told, I, I couldn't. Um, but for the grace of God and, and a great wife and supportive, prayerful friends, um, here we are, November 1st, uh, 12 years later. But it is also uh, um, interesting because this life of A.W. Tozer served a very particular purpose and um, important part in, in my particular life. Um, because in that last, I'd say, three years of the 12 years, something has happened to me, something that I'm a bit ashamed to talk about. I know that we as, as pastors oftentimes encourage honesty and, and transparency amongst the congregation, and we don't do a real good job of, of demonstrating it ourselves. Um, so let me just tell you where I've been in the last three years. That over the course of two or three years, really unconsciously aware that it was happening, my heart grew cold and dry. I continued to do ministry and than ordinary things of life, but what I didn't realize is that inside there was a hollowing out because I neglected my soul. And when you neglect your soul, it just goes one direction. It goes cold and dry. And that was largely due because of the demands and pressures of ministry. And, and I, I was told in seminary, one of the big dangers of ministry is you'll let your heart go, hollow out, and you'll do ministry externally with no heart. And, um, and that's exactly what, ha what, what, what happened. So I'm doing ministry here and using my gifts and distracted by all the wonderful things of life, like cheerleading. And my daughter cheerleads. I don't cheerlead, but <laughs> cheerleading. And uh, soccer and being a parent and all that stuff. And you carry on, carry on, and then you realize 
wow, I, I'm not doing this with a sincere passion anymore. And I'm not doing it with this compelling conviction that I once had that I, I so believed it. It's like I can't hold it in. And that's, that's where God brought me is, is in that time I can't hold it in any longer. And um, so I was basically doing a shell of ministry with no heart. And then sometime about last spring, uh, we were going through a series of messages called The Death of Pride. I don't know if you remember that. I was thinking it was for our congregation, but first and foremost, I think it was for me. Because in that time, we're asking, Lord, Lord, will you reveal to us areas of, of hard-heartedness and areas of, of compromise, areas where we have grown proud? Again, pride being the root of all sin. And, um, and the Lord really opened up my eyes to the fact that, you know, you've been doing ministry these years, and you have neglected your soul. And you're not doing it with sincere passion or that conviction you once had. You are dry. And he impressed upon me very, very powerfully that I neither needed to repent or resign. Because the church doesn't need a hollow pastor. It doesn't. You don't need me to do ministry in my gifts with a hollow heart or a cold or dried out life. You don't. That just doesn't work. I felt repentant, but I didn't know, and this is something we can't control, I didn't know how to get the conviction back or the passion back. That sense of, Lord, I, I long for you, and I'm thirsty for you, and I want to be with you, and I want to be in your word, and I want to get on my knees and pray, for you, pray with you and pray, pray, pray to you. And I didn't know how to get that back. And then... Um, Near the end of May, uh, a friend came up to me, a good friend whose, whose recommendation I trust, and, and she said, here's a book that you have to read. She told me the name of it. And the name of it was God's Pursuit of Man by A.W. Tozer, which went by a different name in his time. It was called The Divine Conquest. Divine Conquest, which I actually like that label better. And um, now I had read Tozer's books before, and I have recommended that particular one to you, and I think we sold it in the back. Um, I read, I read Tozer's The Pursuit of God in college. I remember reading Knowledge of the Holy when I was in seminary. All of them wonderful books. But I think this particular book at, came at just the right time. So I ordered it for Amazon.com. It came, and, and I think I went on vacation a couple uh, weeks later. And um, I hadn't read it yet. And some of this I've already shared. But, uh, but indulge me here for a moment. Um, I opened the book. And again, I know, I knew the Lord said to me, basically, you need to be renewed or, or you need to leave. And, um, and so I started reading, and, it, and almost every page, there was a sense where God just brought me to the edge of tears, where you just feel a brokenness, but a brokenness that has a sense of joy to it, like you know God's doing something, like he's pouring fresh water onto this dry, cracked ground of my heart. And I, I felt it and experienced it in a way that I just can't articulate. And in fact, that experience I've tried to relay to people and I, and I just can't do it. They just look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, we're talking two different languages. All I know is that the Lord met me at that moment through the pages of this man's book and brought new wind into my sails and a fresh hunger and a thirst for the Lord. Now, obviously, I still have a long ways to go, and I never want to be in that place again of neglecting my soul. And I'll tell you, if you neglect your soul, it will dry out and grow cold. You have to take... Um, careful analysis of, of your heart at all times, like ask, noticing that, hey, I don't want to pray. I feel like I have to pray. That's a red flag. If there's no compulsion to pray, that means your heart's in the wrong place. If you feel like you have to, you're 
you're in the wrong place. And those now have become these red flags that now, hey, your heart's drifting and you need to, again, um, have God pour that fresh water back into your soul. But God used um, A.W. Tozer to bring some fresh um, mercy to my life and kind of open the veil and bring a sense of renewal um, to me. And as a result of that, he's, he's become not just a figure from history. He really has become like a friend. I like think of him as a friend or a, or a close brother, even though I've never met him, um, because I only know him through his books. But that's what compelled me to choose A.W. Tozer, um, that he spoke into my life, and God used him to speak into my life in a time that I desperately needed him and uh, started the work of, of renewal with me. So that's why, a little bit of why, and I know there are some here that can probably totally relate. It's like, man, that's exactly where I'm at. And perhaps the church is like that too, you know, on a macro level. Just dry and wondering, where's the desire and the passion? Where's the conviction I can't hold in any longer? Where's the compulsion to pray and to read and study Scripture and to live out the Christian life, not just this hollow tradition that you adhere to? Well, if that's you, I'm hoping that um, Tozer might just drip some waters. Let me just say it differently. Let, let the Holy Spirit through Tozer will drip some waters of fresh life into you as a result of this. And what follows, I'm going to kind of give you a, a big sweep of his life very quickly, as quickly as I can. And then I'd like to draw out some lessons from things that he has, has taught. Now, let me just say by way of preparation that this message is longer than others. And that's just the way it is. You know what it's try, like, like to, to combine a man's life and his teaching? Here's two great biographies. If you want to know more, you have to read one of these by either Lyle Dorsett or uh, James Snyder. I'll leave those here. If you want to look at them, get the names, you can get them later. But it's like trying to stuff, stuff Texas into your pocket. Um, so bear with me. I'm going to speed over his life as fast as possible. But if you don't know a little bit about who he is, you don't get, get him. So um, here's a bit of his life. Uh, he was born in the 1800s, late 1800s, 1897, April 21st, and he was born uh, in the, the foothills of the Allegheny Mountains in western Pennsylvania. And uh, he was raised in his early years on the family farm inherited from his grandfather. Uh, little Aiden's parents were not believers, so he did not grow up in a, in a Christian home. And uh, the farm in which they lived and the time in which they lived, they, um, they barely were able to eke out a living. So he came from very poor uh, roots. But there are several things that happened there on that family farm in western Pennsylvania that would uh, form certain characteristics and, and aspects of his life, like one of them was the losing of the family house to a fire. His mom was cooking bread in their, their oven, which is more of a fireplace, and, um, and she left the house, and apparently the fire was too hot, and um, a chimney fire started, and the house was burned to the ground. But before the house was burned to the ground, little Aiden Tozer, I'll just call him Tozer from here on out, uh, Tozer and his sister went inside before it burned to the ground to try to get out as much stuff as they could. But in the end, um, they really lost everything. Uh, some of you might be able to relate in this economic times to losing everything. One of the things that that did for him is it just showed him the transience and the uncertainty of, of things around him, that you just can't keep stuff. Even as a young child, that's one of the things that figured into his formation. Another a life-altering event for him was his father, uh, Jacob Tozer, who, who after the family farmhouse burned down, um, he experienced a series of nervous breakdowns, which completely incapacitated him, and he was eventually hospitalized uh, with acute depression. So 
His father basically is completely incapacitated because of acute depression. His older brother um, moves off to Akron, leaving the responsibility of the family farm to Aiden, um, who was not even 11 years old at the time. So, in effect, the whole responsibility for, for caring for the family falls to a kid who's 10, almost 11, um, thrust upon him. And his sister would later say, um, regarding that event, she would say, and here I quote, that he was never a boy again. It is a force to this late 10-year-old to grow up really fast. So he lost the family home. He had, bore the responsibility of the family farm. As far as education goes, Tozer never um, uh, finished anything higher than eighth grade. Um, he did one day of high school and then realized he could do a better job himself. So he had no real extensive formal training at all. Now, I will say that based upon what I have read, that elementary school curriculum was far better and had far more advanced content than what we currently have. Um, and it was, it provided a Christian worldview for him. In his public education, they were given a Christian worldview, which is, is missing today. So he did get, even from his education, um, a fairly decent education and also a Christian worldview, though at this point he was not a believer. But what he lacked in formal training, he made up for because he had a voracious appetite to learn and to read so that the rest of his life would be about reading, 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 and reading. I'll have more to say about that in a couple of moments. They lost the family home, which they had to rebuild. The pressures of the family farm were on Tozer. He had relatively um, little formal training. Um, With all of this kind of pressure, the Tozers uh, managed to auction off their farm and move to the large city of of Akron, Ohio, where Tozer would um, get a job at the Goodyear Tire Plant, cutting big pieces of rubber into small pieces of rubber. That's, that's one of the jobs that he had. But it was there in Akron, Ohio, in the next major phase of his life where he would be converted and he would um, find his, his wife and he would feel the call to ministry. He explains or describes his, his conversion in this way, and he was walking along the street, um, coming home from the Goodyear Tire Plant, and over on the opposite side, there was this group of people listening to somebody, and curiosity drew him, so he crossed the street, went over, and these people were gathered around this man who was preaching with a really thick German accent. And so he stayed and listened. He was 17 at the time, and at first he couldn't understand the man's accent, but in listening to him long enough, he was able to figure out how to listen to him. And, um, and somehow, in some way, listening to this German man preach, and the essential message was you need to pray to God to have mercy and save you, um, God got through to Tozer. And I think it's kind of interesting that God would use a man who spoke with a heavy German accent to meet this farm boy, um, not somebody who is uh, on the street, by the way. Well, um, from there, he went home to his his house with that burden of what the man preached, and he went upstairs into the attic, and there he surrendered his life to Christ. And almost immediately, it, it, it bore fruit. Uh, one of the things that he did after his conversion is he went down into the basement. He had five brothers and sisters, so it was a full house. And oftentimes, um, his mom would bring in boarders to help offset the costs of things. So the house is abuzz with all kinds of people. And what he did is he went down into the basement, and there was this little place next to the furnace where he um, made a little comfortable place where he could pray. And he would spend hours praying after his conversion. That was what God prompted him to do. Well, that's his, essentially his conversion. And right after his conversion, he decided he needed to find a church. So he found a local Methodist church. 
the importance of this particular place is he would meet his future wife there, who was 15 at the time. Um, gosh, 15 years old. Some kid wants to marry my daughter, 15, man. That's, <laughs> wow. He's going to have another thing coming. In any respect, a different time, of course. Um, he met his then future wife, who would play a major part in his life. But before his future wife would play a part in his wife, his future mother-in-law would play an even bigger part. So let's just be clear. Tozer meets his future bride, a young woman by the name of Ada. I think it's pronounced Fouts, P-F-A-U-T-Z. Um, but before they were married, um, her mother, his future mother-in-law, played an amazing part. Now, there was in her blood a certain Pentecostal spirit. Because she saw in young Tozer this tremendous potential, this budding hunger for God. And she would say to him, and here I quote, Young man, you must get down on your knees and die to yourself before the Holy Spirit will fill you. And that was her message to him. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And on one occasion, Tozer finally listened to her. And with his future mother-in-law, knelt down by the couch and he prayed And he was, in some amazing, unexplainable experience, he was filled with God's Spirit. However one wants to understand it, it made a remarkable impact on his life. So that later in his life, he would look back to that event, and this is what he'd say. Listen to this. Any tiny work that God has ever done through me and through my ministry for him, that is for God, dates back to that hour when I was filled with the Spirit. So that he saw the fruit of his entire ministry later in life as stemming from that single hour when the Spirit of God moved in his life in a very powerful way and filled him. Now, continuing on with the quote, he goes on to say, that is why, this is going to explain why he emphasizes the Spirit so much in his works. Um, That is why I plead for the spiritual life of the body of Christ and the external ministries of the eternal spirit through God's children, his instruments. This experience of being filled with the spirit would be crucial. It's like the root of his ministry and would compel him to emphasize it later on in his teachings and writings. So now at this point, he's converted and he's filled. Shortly after, he was married to young Ada Fouts. I don't know how old she was at the time on April 26, 1918. And they would go on to have seven children, a lot of mouths, a lot of typers, seven children, six boys and one girl. They eventually left the Methodist church and he joined um, a church that is part of the, was part of the CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, founded by A.B. Simpson. And there he would be mentored by the local pastor. And more importantly, he gained the notice of the leadership of the CMA, the Christian Missionary Alliance, as someone with tremendous potential. So they began to invest in him. Although, while he had this passion that they saw, he was for all practical purposes a hillbilly. Um, That is, he had a very unrefined way of speaking. His wife said of him, imagine your wife saying this of you, that his speech was, and I quote, very poor, pure Pennsylvania-ish filled with many rural colloquialisms. In other words, it just seemed in many respects kind of dumb when he he spoke. Not only that, he was unimpressive in stature. He weighed about 145 pounds wet. That's what he would say. 145 pounds dripping wet. And in terms of vocal quality, he had a a kind of a squeaky, mousy voice, and he had a lot of nasal tone to it. 
So he was small, he was scrawny, he had a nasally, mousy tone, with no real formal education, not exactly um, the makings of one of God's champions. But, oh, and I should add this too, he didn't know how to dress. Um, he was, uh, by almost everyone's standard, frumpy in his, the way he carried himself and the way he dressed, until much later when people actually bought stuff to put on him because he looked so bad. At any rate, he, they invested in him, and um, he felt the call to ministry and um, was called to a number of different pastorates. His first pastorate was in the town of Clarksburg, West Virginia, where he was the pastor of a small church. From there, he went to Morganstown, I think also in West Virginia. And then he was called up to Toledo, Ohio, another church, CMA church, and then finally to um, Indianapolis. Now, just so it doesn't sound like he's like a church-hopping kind of pastor, most of those were at the behest of the leadership of the CMA. Hey, we need you over here. We need you over here. And he, he, he did what they wanted. Well, when he got to Indianapolis, which was a much larger city than he had been in at the time, uh, or had been since that time, um, uh, was crucial for him as well, because there he had access to a large library. And his congregants would see him going back and forth from the library with stacks and books several times a week. And it was there having access to a library. I'll tell you, just total side note, I don't think we realize sometimes what an amazing gift a library is, and most of us never go. In any respect, for him, it was like an open, open honor to opportunity. He was able to read philosophy, history, science, poetry, literature, and theology. He loved the works of Shakespeare, Milton, Thoreau, Wordsworth, Dickens, Bacon, Emerson, Hawthorne, and many others that I can't repeat here. He loved and drank deeply from the Puritan writers of England and also the early part of the United States, like Edwards. Um, but he loved the most. He loved drinking and, and studying and meditating on the Christian mystics, um, people like Julian of Norwich, Brother Lawrence, uh, St. John of the Cross, um, who developed within him, and this is, here's a quote, who developed within him a God-conscious soul. A God-conscious soul. This inner awareness that God is really here. A heart aflame for God. So he, he devoured books, a wide range of books, explicitly non-Christian books, poetic books, and scientific books. But his favorite and most cherished book is, is what you would expect, and that is a book that he memorized, meditated on, and prayed over, in, and through, namely the Scripture, the Holy Scripture. So he devoured books in Indianapolis. In addition to his hunger for books and reading and learning, with only an eighth grade education, he was also known as a man who was driven and compelled to pray. I already told you, he, even after his conversion, he would go to a little place by his warm furnace, and there he would spend hours in prayer. Um, but prayer marked his life in almost every respect. And by the way, he didn't feel like he had to pray. He was compelled to pray. Um, he had places in his office that he had set aside for solitude and silence where he could pray. Um, he believed that preaching, the beginning of preaching, middle and end of preaching is prayer. He believed that the beginning, middle and end of, of studying God's word was praying. In other words, he prayed in over and through it. And he actually believed, get this, he actually believed that if he put his mind to work in prayer over the scriptures, that the spirit of God would teach him. So he listened for that distinctive voice of the spirit through the scripture before he would open any other commentary or book because he wanted to hear God speak and he believed that. And that practice right there was a rebuke for me, by the way, 
It's easy to come out of a, an educational institution thinking, if I only put my high-powered tools and my grasp of Greek and Hebrew into play, well, then I'll hear God speak. But there's, that can be done without faith or humility. Tozer has basically prayed over the text, trusting that the Spirit would speak to him personally and powerfully what the text would say. So he was a man given to prayer. In fact, one of his famous quotes is, as a man prays, so he is. If you want to know what a man really looks like, look at his prayer life. That is probably the single most greatest identifier as to how spiritual he, he truly is. As I said earlier, he dressed rather frumpily. I don't know if that's a name, but you understand what I'm saying. People in his congregation took compassion on him, thinking, I can, we can't have our pastor looking like that up there. And so they bought him clothes. And so one of his practices again, keeping the theme of prayer, was that he would come dressed to church with his nicely pressed trousers, but then once he got there, he would take them off, hang them up, and he would put on what he called his prayer pants. Because he spent most of his time studying on his knees and praying. That was a combination of prayer and study. Even when he opened works, explicitly non-Christian works, like Shakespeare, he would pray over them, believing that all truth is God's truth. And asking, Spirit of the living God, what are the deeper messages in here that I need to take away? Things that you're speaking through Shakespeare. So he had this meditative, prayerful attitude, even as he was reading more secularized uh, works. So he's a man of tremendous um, prayer. So here you have this unique combination, this kind of blend of, of love for poetry, love for classic works, love for literature, love for scripture, combined with a meditative hunger to learn and understand and pray over. And that is what forged in him or forged him to be the theological poet that he would become. That he wouldn't always be a hillbilly with words. And you read him and you know, oh my, listen to him speak. Listen to him write. Um, so that, that's what happened there in, um, well, in Akron and, and, and also Indianapolis. But then to the latter portion of his life, we might call these the golden years. Um, from Indianapolis, he moved to Chicago. Um, Chicago back then was um, the fourth largest city in the world. It was also the capital of crime. Uh, that was the Capone era and so forth. He moved to Chicago's south side. That doesn't mean anything to you, but if you have ever lived in Chicago, the south side is a place that you don't want to go at night. Uh, in fact, you don't want to go in the daytime either. Uh, it's just a bad place. I don't know if it was as bad in his time, but he was called to pastor the South Side Gospel Tabernacle or the South Side Gospel Church. Um, and he pastored that church for 31 years. But it would be here in Chicago. Chicago back then was a, was a hub. I mean, uh, uh, the former generation had the likes of D.L. Moody. There was the Moody Bible Institute, there was Moody Bible Radio, there was Wheaton College, all right there in the Chicagoland area. And this is basically where God unleashed Tozer, not just on the city, but really on, on the world. It's there that he would write, begin writing articles and essays. He would be asked to speak at different conferences and camps. Um, he became the editor, editor of the Alliance Weekly, which was the CMA uh, magazine, which went far broader than the CMA um, they put his voice on the Moody Bible radio so that people could hear him preach. Um, it's there that I, I think it was there that he, he wrote The Pursuit of God, one of his classic works, um, the one I read in college, um, which was written, by the way, on a single train ride from Chicago to Texas. He got on the train with nothing but a tablet and pen, no laptops back then, and he penned the entire book on a train ride. 
a book which was subsequently translated into Arabic, Armenian, Chinese, Dutch, German, Greek, Hindi, Japanese, Korean, Romanian, and Spanish, and others. In other words, his influence was extending. Um, that students from nearby Wheaton would get in buses and come and listen to him speak, one of whom was the young, budding Billy Graham, who came to listen to Tozer speak. Uh, Graham was young back then, obviously, um, and even sought private audiences with him to speak with him. So he had an enormous impact um, through his ministry there at, in Chicago. And uh, here's another interesting point. is he, His contemporary um, in Britain, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, they actually met and knew each other. And, and you listen to both of them. They were both basically thundering the same basic messages, one here in the States through Tozer and one through Lloyd-Jones there in London. Um, so they were both being used in different continents. So it's there that, that, the, that the Lord really unleashed him. Um, gave through his writing, through his speaking, through his influence. And his influence, of course, is even still felt through the ministry of, of Billy Graham. But his life was not without his challenges. One of the biggest challenges that he faced uh, was that of his sons going off to war. I told you he had six sons. Uh, six. Not six. Six. Five of whom um, signed up for active military duty. Uh, he had two sons going to the Navy one into the Army, and two into the Marine Corps. I knew I loved this guy for another reason. And uh, two of them would be wounded in battle. Uh, His oldest, Lowell, was a part of the Italian campaign in World War II where he would fight in one of the most intense and controversial battles, and he would be wounded. Um, His second-born son, uh, I don't know if he's a second-born son. I should take that back. I'm not sure what's in the birth order, but his name was Forrest. They called him Bud. He fought in the infamous uh, Chosen Reservoir battle over in Korea during the Korean War in which he and his unit of Marines, along with some others from the UN, um, 30,000 of them were surrounded by 60,000 Chinese. They were surrounded. It's like, we're doomed. You might as well put up the white flag. Um, But they decided, in kind of a feat of heroic bravery, to fight. And they broke past the enemy lines. And and Forrest was was part of that that breaking out um, of those those enemy lines. But he broke out... um, getting hit by a piece of shrapnel in the knee, and he was crippled for life. And his, uh, uh, one of his other sons was a tail machine gunner in a Navy plane. And uh, it was during this time when his sons were involved in battles and wars, and they, they didn't have real fast ways to figure out, is my son okay, is my son okay, that one of Tozer's closest friends said that during that period of time his face was ashen white because he was so deeply concerned about the well-being of his sons. So five of his sons basically uh, saw military activity and um, over which he would pray and pray and pray and pray. And yet he continued to do his ministry despite the fact that, that he felt the, the concern for his, his boys in the military. Um, so he had his challenges. He also had his flaws. During his life, Tozer wrote one biography, and it was the biography of A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And one of his philosophies on writing a biography is that you can't just tell the good about the person. You also have to include the warts. Otherwise, you have a distorted view of somebody. So you have to be objective and include the good with the bad to give an accurate representation of who the person was. That's how he wrote biographies, and that's how he would have want his biographies written. And both of the biographies that I have read point out the warts in his life. And from a 21st century perspective, those warts are pretty big and may have disqualified him from ministry from our perspective. 
His major wart in life and flaw, his imperfection, was that while he was pursuing his passion through prayer and preaching and teaching and communion with God, his devotion to his wife and his kids languished. That is, from a 21st century perspective, he neglected his wife and kids. Um, He would often make major decisions like, hey, we're leaving Akron and going to West Virginia without asking his wife. Or telling his wife, he simply would say, we're leaving, which hurt her. He never took vacations to spend time with his family and rarely would take a day off to spend with family. And if he did take a day off, it was largely spent reading and praying. His biographer wrote this, Aiden's traveling schedule wounded Ada, his wife. Consequently, their marriage never knew the intimacy for which she so deeply longed. I and mean, it's a wife's desire to be, have an intimate relationship with her husband. As painful as this reality became to Ada, and there was no evidence that Aiden ever longed, he, he never, A.W. Tozer never longed for more than a surface relationship, she learned to cope. During the West Virginia years, Ada found ways to put on a mask of contentment, and she channeled her affections to her children and needs of family around her. In fact, at one point, and this was kind of uh, disturbing to me, uh, I, I said he had six boys and a daughter. The daughter was nine years behind the, 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 the youngest boy, so she was a little caboose at the end of a long train. Um, but she was the only girl, and she was the apple of his eye. Uh, he had a tremendous relationship with her, taught her how to shoot a twenty-two. But when he would go away to a conference, oftentimes he would write his daughter and not his wife. So she felt neglected. Um, And she lived into the 70s, I think. Uh, But what's interesting to me, and I think this is worth noting, because she herself was an amazing woman, because she stuck it out. Most today wouldn't stick it out. Feel neglected? I'm leaving. Had she left Tozer in those early years, I don't think we would have Tozer today. Now, that does not minimize or excuse his neglect. But I like to think that she understood that her life was bigger than just her marriage or her own needs being met, that she somehow was serving a bigger cause, namely the kingdom of God, by sticking with him. And she did. She supported his ministry. And as a result, we have him. So tremendous grace in that woman's life. But again, she understood she was part of something, I think, bigger. So that's, that's his relationship with his wife. Now, with his kids, it wasn't much better. Um, his boys would later comment, and here I quote, that they experienced little, if any, true affection from their father. That his firstborn son, Noel, sadly commented that his mother, Ada, raised them as a single parent. Part of that was cultural. At the time, women raised the kids. Um, another part of that, I think, perhaps, was that Tozer didn't really have a father to speak of himself. For whatever reason, his big wart and flaw is that he neglected his family. Now, most of us, I think, are, are inclined to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater and not recognize that... Um, God's grace was at work in Tozer's life despite the flaws. We're so easily discredited an entire ministry because somebody has a flaw. But you know what? Every one of God's champions in history, every one of them has been broken. And every one of them flawed. And I don't know why we think they're not. As if somehow they're Jesus. 
that in all of history, all of God's champions, be that Abraham, Noah, David, David's life, uh, Paul and Peter, all of them are broken, broken replicas of the only one who was never broken, namely Jesus. I think we can expect to find flaws, not excuse them, but expect and to graciously recognize God did work in that flawed individual. If he can't work through flawed individuals, he can't work through any of us. That all of us are, are broken, and there's only one who hasn't been. And he's the one, ultimately, we trust. But I, I, I take Tozer, and I recognize God's unique work in his life, and I'm glad he was alive despite his flaws. Um, and I think he would be more than pleased for us to say and acknowledge that those were his flaws. He'd say, yep, that was my downfall. Again, by 21st century standards, I think we would judge him to be that, but um, God used him anyway. He finished out his life in, in the uh, Canadian city of Toronto. Why Canada? I don't know. But he chose Canada. Toronto, Canada is this last pastor. After 31 years in, in Chicago, he was a pastor there. Here, there he would write one of his greatest books, The Knowledge of the Holy. And um, it was there... Um, in 1963, that he felt tightness of chest, and he went um, to the hospital, and everybody was expecting a full and complete turnaround and recovery. Um, but on the evening of May 11th and the early morning of, of May 12th, 1963, at the 66 at, at 66 years of age, Aiden Wilson Tozer, the farm boy turned theological poet and prophet, um, passed through the veil and went to be with his savior and died, but not before he had written for us nine books. And then after he died, editors came along and wrote 31 other books compiled from his recorded sermons and writings and essays. And by the time um, he had died, he had earned three um, honorary doctorates. And I, for one, am deeply and personally thankful that God used this flawed man broken man, to write truth. It would bring new water to the souls of those in the desert. One of his biographers said, fortunate is the soul that is dry that has in his hand a Tozer book. Let me tell you what I've learned from him. This is the meat of it. Lesson number one. And this is an obvious one. And it's drawn from the general flow of his entire life. Here's a man who came from humble beginnings with no formal education to speak of. He was not impressive of size. As I said, 145 pounds wet. His preaching tone was mousy and nasally, and most of the time he looked frumpy. It's the picture of an unimpressive man, and in our celebrity Worshipping culture, he wouldn't have fit the bill. So why in the world did God use him in such a remarkable way with his flaws? And I think the answer is because God generated in this man an untamed passion and hunger for God. That if you could be one thing in your Christian life, if you could be consumed by the greatness of who God is, and find yourself captivated and ravished by His greatness, 
It wouldn't make a difference how much education you had or how strong your voice is or how tall or impressive you looked. It's that kind of person that God uses to turn things upside down. He used Tozer that way in the generation before. He used uneducated Moody that way. If for no other reason to say, all I need, really, and God doesn't need anybody, but all I'm looking for is someone who thinks I'm great, knows I'm great, and is ravished by who I am. And if I find that kind of person, or should I say, if I awaken that kind of person, then they will change the world. It's not how much education you have. It's not how strong your voice is. It's not the James Earl sound that's going to change people's lives. It's being wholly consumed with God himself. If you could do one thing, pray for one thing, it would be that. That you would hunger and thirst after the living God like like a soul, a deer in a dry and weary land. That is one of the lessons you can see from the flow of his life. God used an unimpressive man to accomplish impressive things. Another lesson that, that comes right out of that, and it really comes more from what exudes from him than anything specific that he says. And that is that, that, that one gets from him and one um, almost contagiously is infected by him in a way that makes you long for what he longed for. That is, his obsession is infectious. And it comes forth in his books that he is an example of a soul that's utterly ravaged with the greatness of God. And that for him was the essence of worship. Worship wasn't just getting together and singing mindlessly and heartlessly. It was being ravaged by him and, and being so inclined to chase after his wonders and to meditate upon his truths. To be filled with desire, romantic obsession with the infinite wonders of God in Christ. And the magic of Tozer, and here's the magic of it, is that as one reads his works, in particular, God's pursuit of man, the knowledge of the holy and the pursuit of God, one is like kind of sucked into what he sees so that one finds himself experiencing what he experienced. That's his magic, in my opinion. If you want to understand the logic and theology of how important and necessary desire and passion are to the Christian life, read a Jonathan Edwards or read a John Piper. But if you want to feel the passion, read a Tozer. He is infectious. So that what he writes, you feel. That's his, that's his gift. Here are a couple of excerpts of his. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. In other words, God made us this way to long for him. Deep, calling to deep. And though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall of man, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. Wherever the heart begins to burn with a desire for God, she is made able to receive the uncreated light. And inspired and fulfilled by the gifts of the Holy Ghost, she tastes the joys of heaven. She transcends all visible things and is raised to the sweetness of eternal life. You can't read that and not go, that's what I want. The sweetness of eternal life, the tastes of the joy of heaven all around that transcend all visible things. One senses as one reads that he actually is fainting with desire. Like, I need more. Crawling on hands and knees, I need more. In the same spirit of the psalm we read, I hunger and thirst for you. 
Bojo's one of those guys that doesn't just say, hey, this is why a sunset is beautiful. Using an analogy. He's the one who sees it and describes it in such a way so that you see, him, see it through him. And awakens a sense of desire and a passion. And that's quite frankly what happened as I was reading five months ago. It's like he sucked me in and helped me to see what I hadn't seen in so long. And then the heart begins to beat a little more. And the affections begin to, to yearn and to thirst. That's his gift. That's what he does to the church. And most of what you get from him is caught not taught. So the punchline of lesson number two, namely that he is an example, a kind of an exuding, contagious example, is to read him. And to read him with a heart that's starving. Unless you're starving and prayerful, you're going to read it and go, hey, that wasn't that big of a deal. But where there's a thirsty, hungry spirit that says, that's what I need, that's what I want, God will use Tozer to light your fire. Third lesson, and it really, these all are connected together, is Tozer teaches not just to us, but to the church, and emphasizes the absolute necessity of experience. Important word, experience. In one's communion and worship with God. That that, that the experience of God is absolutely necessary when we commune and when we worship Him. And it would be this emphasis that would draw fire from fundamentalist pastors around who didn't want to emphasize the importance of experience. One caveat, experience does not determine truth, and I don't think Tozer would ever say it did, but it does confirm truth. He would say this, this is a whole string, and it's weaved all the way through his writings. He says, Some who desire to be teachers of the word, but who understand neither what they say nor whereof they affirm, insist upon naked faith, As the only way to know spiritual things, by this they mean a conviction of the trustworthiness of the Word of God. In other words, they restrict faith to trust that the Word of God is infallible and trustworthy. To which Tozer would say, yes, but... And he goes on to say, but... The the man who has been taught even slightly by the Spirit of truth will rebel at this perversion, for he cannot love a God who is no more than a deduction from a text... He will crave to know God with a vital awareness that goes beyond words. In other words, a worship and a hunger that goes beyond mere printed words on page. And to live in the intimacy of personal communion. That you're not just fellowshipping with verbs and nouns, but But there is a personal communion that is beyond just the printed words that needs to be pressed through toward. And that is an experienced reality. He says elsewhere, we have substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter. We're full of religious notions, but our great weakness is that for our hearts there is no one there. So we're in love with ideas, but we're not in love with the person that they represent. Whatever else it embraces, true Christian experience must always include a genuine encounter with God. You actually meet with Him. It cannot but be a major tragedy. Listen to this, and I wonder if this describes anybody here. 
it cannot be but a major tragedy in the life of any man to live in the church from childhood to old age and know nothing more real than some synthetic God compounded of theology and logic that is in idea and theory. But having no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no heart to love. And that was part of his prophetic message to the church then, and it is now. He looked around and saw a hollow church that had neglected her soul, and the soul is the Spirit, and her experience of the Spirit. And so he would say to her, God is here, and He is to be experienced. So he presses the necessity of deep spiritual experience. And by the way, those two are connected. He was Obsessed with God because he was experiencing God. How do you get obsessed about a particular kind of pie? Well, you eat the pie. How do you become obsessed with God unless you have an arresting encounter with Him? And then the third step and the third lesson, which links those together, kind of the root of them all, is that he believed, he preached, and he emphasized the absolute and dynamic presence of the Spirit of God in the life of the church. That it wasn't a theoretical presence, it's a real and experienced presence that we can commune with the Christ who is physically distant at the right hand of God. We can commune with Him through the Spirit of Christ given to us. So there is direct communion with Christ through the Spirit that is real. He would also draw fire from the fundamentalists for his overemphasis, what they thought, on the Spirit, to which he would thunder back and say, no, the problem is not with me, it's with your underemphasis of the Spirit. Listen to a couple of things he said. He said, our blunder, talking about the church, our blunder, and he puts in parentheses, or shall we frankly say our sin? Our blunder as a church, our blunder as a sin, our, blunder, our sin as a church, has been to neglect the doctrine of the Spirit to the point where we virtually deny Him His place in the Godhead. This denial has not been an open doctrinal statement, for we have clung closely enough to the biblical position wherever our creedal pronouncements are concerned. In other words, He is there in our doctrinal statements. We believe in the Spirit. We just confessed it with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. So it's in our creeds. It's in our doctrine. It's in our speech. He says, our formal creeds is sound, the written one. The breakdown is in our working creed. We say it, but we don't believe it and we don't live it out. We talk about the power of the Spirit, but we don't experience the Spirit. And that is a blunder, he says. Or dare we say a sin that we have virtually denied him a place in the Godhead. He goes on to say, fundamentalism has stood aloof from the liberal in self-conscious superiority. He's talking about the liberal. He's talking about early 20th century liberal religion, which basically said, ah, this is just a human book. Um, it's fallible. It's full of error. And the miracles, those are just made-up miracles. That was the liberal of the early 20th century, which fundamentalism was a reaction against. And so he writes, fundamentalism has took an aloof position from the liberal in self-conscious superiority. It's like, we don't believe that. But he says, and it's fallen into its own error. And here's the error, the error of textualism, which is simply orthodoxy without the Holy Ghost. He's basically saying to the fundamentalists, yes, you have the word, but you have no power. You have printed words, but you don't have the spirit. Textualism, you've fallen into your own error. 
He goes on to say the Spirit penetrates and fills our personalities and we are experientially one with God. Regarding the Holy Spirit, Tozer made this astounding statement. He said, one of the most telling blows, this is, if you don't get anything else, listen to this. One of the most telling blows which the enemy, Satan, has ever struck at the life of the church, one of the greatest attacks in Tozer's opinion, was to create in her, in the church, a fear of the Holy Spirit. He sees it as a satanic attack of the greatest proportions to create within the church a fear of the Spirit that the church in Acts never knew. And that fear is real. Why he is underemphasized. He says, I think there can be no doubt that the need above all needs in the church of God at this moment is the power of the Holy Spirit. More education, better organization, finer equipment, more advanced methods are all unavailing. It is like bringing a better respirator after the patient is dead. He's dead. Respirator doesn't do any good. Education, organization doesn't do any good. The crying moment need of his time, and I would probably add our time, is the power of the Holy Spirit to return, like the glory of God returning to the temple. I I hope you see all these three things fit together. Actually, four things. He lived a life obsessed with God because he was obsessed with God. And he was obsessed with God and had a passion and thirst for him because he believed that God could be and did experience God. He experienced him. And he experienced him because the Spirit was present in his life. Which is why the Spirit is so core to his writings. And by the way, that earned him the belief that you could commune directly with God through the Spirit that earned him the pejorative label of mystic by those who didn't like him. Ah, Tozer's a mystic. To which he would say, a mystic is simply somebody who believes it is possible to commune with God Almighty right now through Jesus Christ in the Spirit and know it. And have a sense of heaven all around him and being in the presence of God even when he's in the presence of men. If that's being a mystic, then I plead guilty and I am. One final lesson, and then I'll draw this to a close. Is because he, ha- he believed that the, the Spirit really was the crying need of the church, he was able to speak with a prophetic voice, prophetic meaning that he was able to see the weaknesses in the church for what they were. And while everybody else is saying, hey, she just needs a Band-Aid or a facelift, he's saying, no, she has cancer. He had the ability to do that. He had a prophetic voice, just like Lloyd-Jones had in, in England. A prophetic voice saying, we're in trouble here. The church is half of what she should be. Some perceived him as negative, but I think he was truthful. He wasn't crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You know, one of the reasons I think that he could do that is he never went to seminary. That doesn't mean that he would frown upon someone going to seminary. Nor does it mean he was anti-intellectual. Anybody who would fawn over Nathaniel Hawthorne or Shakespeare or the Puritans is not an anti-intellectual. In fact, he would go on to tell people that, you know what, you need to think ten times more than you read. Don't just read a whole bunch. You've got to digest and think about it. He was intensely intellectual. So he wasn't anti-intellectual. But what he saw in the pastors around him 
was he saw people who would come off the conveyor belt of, of, of seminary so that they were simply repeating the same things that they heard from their professors, the same dead cliches and lifeless words that couldn't grab a hold of what was going on, nor could they see because of their institutional training the, the intense weaknesses of the church. So the fact that he bypassed seminary was a tremendous strength. He could see what others couldn't see and was able to speak to those things. That's why he could say to the fundamentalists, you have word, great, but you don't have power. And one of those prophetic messages that still needs to be heard today is that he, he saw the church as weak. He saw the church as having no heart. And as a result, the church, to compensate for this, were looking outside to try and, and ail her, 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 her diseases. What we really need in the church is, is greater technology, or we need this method or this, this program. And he said, you're looking in all the wrong places. You're looking to new and novel message, uh, uh, methods to do what only the Spirit of God can do. This is him. He says, it sounds like he's living today. We now demand in the church glamour and fast-flowing dramatic action. Unless it's dramatic, lots of action. People aren't going to come to church. A generation of Christians reared upon push-button Push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower, less direct methods of reaching their goals. We read our chapter, have our short devotions, rush away hoping to make up for the deep inward bankruptcy by attending another gospel meeting or listening to another thrilling story told by a religious adventurer lately returned from afar. In other words, let's get people excited about things other than God. The tragic results, he goes on to say, of this, of this spirit are all about a shallow loves, hollow religious philosophies, the preponderance of the element of fun. In the gospel meetings. Hey, if we make it fun and make it attractive, then people will come. The question is, what then is attracting people? Is it the greatness and the wonder and the glory of God? Or is it that nifty method that's being used? Specifically, he was concerned about the church caving into using entertainment to attract people instead of God. Fun in the gospel meetings, the glorification of men. Trust in religious externalities, quasi-religious fellowships, salesman methods, the mistaking of a dynamic personality for the power of the Spirit. Did you get that last one? People easily, easily say, wow, that guy's full of the Spirit. Why? Because he's, he has charisma. And he's saying, people will mistake charisma for the actual power of the Spirit, and we do that. These and such as these are symptoms of an evil disease and a deep, serious malady of the soul in the church. His prophetic word to us here in this is more relevant today than his time, where we have infinite numbers of technologies, and we tend to think, if only we would do blank, the church would be revived. And you could put websites, web pages, radio ministry, whatever you want to fill it with. To him, there was only one answer. And it wasn't the novel methods of making better music, better video enhanced backgrounds, more color, smoke and lights, all of which in and of themselves are not wrong. But the danger is this. This is dangerous. Is that using those things can manipulate a feeling of worship without there really being worship. I mean, every time I watch We Were Soldiers, I moved and I cried. 
Because that movie is so put together that it makes anyone who served any time cry, even people who haven't. We could so manipulate the parts of a worship service to generate a feeling. The real question is, is it really worship or is it surrogate worship? You have to ask yourself when you leave thinking, oh, that was great. What was it that made it great? Was it that you sensed the presence of God in the truth and in the people as they worshipped? Or was it, wow, that was a good show. And that was his great concern because you can have a church worshipping without worshipping. And that's the danger of using human methods to treat what is a disease that only the Spirit of the living God Himself re-energizing and renewing the church can do. He didn't see those methods, those novel methods, as a remedy. He saw them as a disease. It was, in essence, to bow to the God of human methods and technology um, because the church is bankrupt of the Spirit of God. So here you have a man, a simple man, not an impressive man, but a hungry man, obsessed by God because he experienced God, because he knew that the Spirit was an actual dynamic presence in his life. And in and of and with that, he was able to change the world. I mean, God changing the world through him. And I hope, if there's nothing else that's gained, if you're one of those people to find yourself crawling through the desert on cracked sand, and you're hearing this stuff by Tozer and you're thinking, I'm not there, then I want you to understand it is available to you. Spirit is really here. Spirit is to be experienced. And when one experiences him, he creates a hunger and a thirst. I would encourage you to read him, but more importantly, I'd encourage you to cry out to the Lord saying, that, I need fresh water. I need the water that Tozer experienced. And I need the outpouring of the Spirit of God in my life. That alone, and that alone, is going to rekindle the fires of the church. It's God, a work of grace, sovereign work of the Spirit, inhabiting His people. I pray that for you. I pray that for us. Don't be content with a marginal, heartless faith. I don't want to ever be there again, and I hope you don't want to be there. And I think Tozer was used to show us the way. Lord, make that true in our lives. May we humble ourselves before you, taking an account of our hearts, asking tough questions like, do I feel compelled to pray or do I feel like I have to pray? And if we discern that I feel like I have to, then we have heart problems, soul problems. If we feel like we have to read the Word and it's a chore and a duty that we don't like, that we would see that that's a heart problem because it's meant to be a feast of the soul and direct and personal communion with you. Lord, I pray that each person here would experience that, and they just see how wonderful you are, and that you would begin to pour into their hearts and into their lives the renewing waters of your Spirit, and they would know you live, and they would sense your strength, so that they could take on whatever adversities and difficulties they're experiencing. Lord, by the grace 
your grace and by the, by the blood of Jesus. We pray that you do your work and continue your work. Revive us. In Christ's name, amen.